This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got an exciting guest for you today. I've been able to work with this guy on a couple of projects. Exciting to hear his views on economics, underwriting the industry in general, and just get to share him in, in, with our audience. Please help me welcome my guest, Bryce Robertson. Bryce, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, Ferd. Great to be here, mate. Yeah, good. Obviously, we can tell from your accent you're you're not from Kansas City, but tell us a little <laughs> more your back. Tell us a little bit more about your background and uh, how you got into MHP space. Yeah, so you know, born and raised in Australia. Then I got to the end of high school and I realized I do not want to do the um, university path. And so I had no idea about entrepreneurship or business at the time. So I uh, went out there and I got a blue collar job and the highest paid I thought I could get when I was a steel fabricator welder. So I did my apprenticeship and I uh, once I finished my apprenticeship, I went out to Western Australia and worked in the underground gold mines uh, and you know working like twelve hours a day, seven days a week week, um, saving up a bunch of money. And then I got to the point where I wanted to leave Australia and travel the world for six years. And I did exactly that. Here's how I did it. I started off in London that was my first base camp. And I would work there, you know, sometimes like, you know, 12, 14 hours a day, even seven days a week, sometimes work for like three months, save up a whole big chunk of cash, then go traveling for Europe. And then until my money ran out and then I would come back and I'll do the same cycle in Africa. And so I did like UK, Europe and Africa for about three years. Then I went over to, I wanted to change the scenery. So I went to a small little ski village called Fernie in British Columbia, Canada in the Rocky mountains. And uh, I got right into my snowboarding, downhill mountain biking. I opened, uh, I had my own little business out the uh, coal mines and then I was firefighting there as well. And I was so consumed with the activities that I was doing there that I didn't really travel anywhere else. And that allowed me to save up a big chunk for two years. And then I ended up taking that money and I took an 18 month surfing and scuba diving trip down in Central and South America. And in the last six months of that trip, that's where I met my wife, who's a native of California. So naturally we ended up in America. And when we ended up in America, we just made a commitment with each other. We wanted to recreate this type of freedom lifestyle, except this time we wanted to do it, number one, so not only our money doesn't run out, but number two, so our money's growing while we're traveling and having fun and doing the things we want to do. So I started off we looked at the three main ways that we can make big bucks. That's owning a business, um, stock market. I think cryptocurrencies would fit into that category too now. And then real estate. And in the beginning, I did about seven different side hustles just hoping that one of them would take off. But I realized I was spinning plates. I was spreading my energy too thin and I was having mediocre success. So I realized I have to like stop and focus on one thing. I knew it was going to be real estate because at the time I had a 20 year background in construction and construction management. And, um, but what am I going to do in real estate? So I looked at all the different asset classes. I looked at mobile home parks, self storage, single family, fix and flips, wholesale notes. I looked at all of them, the financials, how it all works. And over and over again, mobile home parks just kept standing out to me. Um, the need for affordable housing, supply and demand in massive favor of park owners, not that much competition compared to other asset classes, higher cash flow, higher profits, better tax benefits. I was in. So I laser focused on mobile home parks and then um, told the universe, 
it's, it's a mobile home parks only. You can throw anything at me. I'm going to say no. And I started all of a sudden getting these like multifamily and single family deals that had never come across my table before. And it was my test to say no to those things. I said no. And a couple of months later, I got my first mobile home park under contract. But when I did that, I was not in circumstances that you would think would be um, ideal to purchase a mobile home park. I had a negative net worth. I had $2,000 in the bank and I had unseasoned credit because I hadn't been in the States long enough. Um, so I, I ended up leaning on family and friends to bring in the capital to fund that deal. And then three months later, we ended up getting the deal across the finish line. And then once I got that deal across the finish line, I felt like I was 10 foot tall. I, I, I felt like I conquered and, and done the impossible. And I also learned there's this amazing way to do deals through syndication by bringing investors in where they can passively invest in a deal. I can do all the hard work. Everybody wins. So I ended up rinsing and repeating that process for the next uh, two and a half years. And then uh, my wife and I became financially fee. I retired ourselves. We no longer had to work. We worked because we choose to, not because we have to. And uh, it just radically, radically changed our lives. And we haven't looked back. That's awesome, man. That's that's a fun story. That's inspiring too. Great to see. I'm with you on uh, trying to be laser focused on MHP because it's definitely got those benefits that you mentioned. I'm curious. So, when you moved countries so much, what, did you just find random jobs, or did you use your steel fabrication job? Like when you're in Africa, did you did you use mm -hmm. it there? When you're in London, did you use it there, or did you just do whatever you could to make a buck? You know, at that time. I was only working in London and in Canada um, and I was leaning on my steel fabrication and welding. And then when I was in Europe and Africa, I was just traveling, you know, okay. when I was in central and South America, I just like surfed and scuba dived every day. And so technically I was a dive master, but you can't really call that a job, dude. Cause I was like scuba diving four times a day and just loving my life. So. Wow. That's awesome. I got another friend that had a similar story, a contractor and said, I'm going to travel and just did it. That's awesome. It's great to see you. You've uh, got into this asset class. I think you're right that the competition's less, the tax benefits are better, the, the financials are better than uh, other alternative real estate or other alternative investment options. What, what are you seeing though in the, in the last year? I mean, in the, you, know, you mentioned the last two, three, four years, the industry, as we all know, has changed considerably from a competition standpoint, a lot of private equity, a lot of big, a lot of you know, REITs are buying up all kinds of lots of new entrants from the minor league, the guys to the major league guys. What are you seeing on your end? And then how has it impacted your underwriting on deals? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a good question. Um, so we're seeing a lot of competition. One of the things though, that was actually working to our benefit last year was that, um, there's, it's, there, yes, there is more competition, but it's not necessarily mobile home park experienced competition. So right. brokers were coming to us last year saying, Hey man, we're going to park that fits your criteria. Um, it's fallen out of contract a couple of times. Honestly, the number one thing for the sellers is they want someone that they know can drive the deal home and get closed on the deal. And so we ended up winning like two or three deals last year just because of that, because there is other people in, out there that are bringing their evaluation methods from self-storage and, um, you know, other multifamily apartments and other asset classes, which in my opinion, don't apply to evaluating a mobile home park correctly for purchase. And they're bringing those, those skills to the table. And then they're paying essentially overpriced, um, lower cap rates, higher price for these parks, um, driving cap rates, uh, sorry, driving cap rates down and prices up. But 
there's a lot of people that aren't closing on these deals uh, for one reason or another. So yes, there's more competition, but there's not really like tons of qualified competition. So I kind of still feel like there's not really that much competition. The main thing that we're actually taking into consideration in our underwriting and our approach to acquisitions and our whole business strategy is uh, conservative underwriting. Because on the side, I actually study macroeconomics because I'm always trying to find out for my investor group and for myself, what the highest probabilities and possibilities are so that we can kind of mitigate those in advance and put ourselves in the best position to be profitable because our entire business is resolved around, revolves around recession-resistant investing. So like the times that we're experiencing right now is times where mobile home parks can really, really perform. Um, there's a lot of things happening out there, things that are unknown. So in our underwriting, uh, for example, we did a couple of deals last year where we, we purchased and at year three, we do a refinance and then our investors get cashed out of the refinance and they stay in the deal for like five, seven years. Well, um, in that, at that refinance point, right now, we can get financing uh, for those circumstances. We're probably in the high 3% range, maybe low 4% range. Um, but we've been underwriting at the three-year mark for the interest rate to be 6%. And we've also added on um, an extra one, maybe one and a half, and sometimes 2% to our cap rate on our refinance or on our end um, liquidation event, uh, just so that we can mitigate for cap rates uh, uh, increasing. And, uh, and actually going back up again and uh, interest rates increasing. And we also have doubled all of our construction and labor and materials costs just in case uh, we see a massive price inflation. And we're also underwritten. So most of our construction gets knocked out in the first 12 months. So we're kind of mitigating that risk as well. We've doubled our property taxes uh, there's just a lot of things that we're doing to uh, basically mitigate ourselves should these certain things come to fruition. Now, are all of them going to come to fruition? Highly likely not. And the most important thing to us is when we're projecting returns to our investors is that we're going to at least meet what we projected, if not exceed. And fortunately, so far, we've got a 100% track record of exceeding our projections. That's great. No, I mean, that's, that's a good idea. I mean, um, yeah, I've, I've seen it happen with a lot of people that are, their assumptions are so aggressive and some of my clients, for example, will just hire me. Hey, just do the paperwork. Someone will say, Hey, underwrite my deal with me. Someone will say, give me operational strategies, but I've had some where I've seen their financials and guys that are junior and experienced to me, junior and net worth to me, they'll have refinance cash out assumptions in there. And I'll say, where are you going to get that loan six months in and take that cash out. I goes, I can't get that loan. And they're like, Oh, why not? What should we do? I'm like you're, you've already told your investors. Yeah. We're going to push the rent. We're going to fill 10 lots in six months. We're going to refinance. We'll take all the money out. I'm like, you're going to get this. It's, it's not big enough for Fannie Mae. And it's not gonna be seasoned enough. You're not, it's, it's a local bank's not going to give you that cash out that fast. And that, and that 80% cash out. And they're like, Oh, so they, they, the, the opposite of what you're doing, you're mitigating future problems and problems that are perhaps outside of your hands, like macroeconomic conditions of interest rates, but which is, which is prudent. But these guys were doing was, you know, being overly aggressive. And there's it's like, it's, in my opinion, it was statistically impossible for them to meet their projections. And yeah. And in my opinion, that's not sustainable. You know, if they're, if they're bringing investors in on the mix, as soon as they screw up the first deal, then just not, investors aren't going to invest them with them anymore. And they've pretty much burnt their name in the industry. In addition to that, they're probably going to have to like reach a point, maybe one, two, three years into their business plan, realize they massively messed up. And now they're going to have to liquidate, maybe even take a loss uh, for themselves. And I think that because of that, we're going to see like quite a few more parks come back on the market 
market um, because people realized they got in over their head or didn't have the right assumptions up front. I agree. I think that's that's the next cycle. I mean, the the, the ma and pa owners are going away for professional owners on a regular basis, but you're right with people coming from other asset classes. Some of them have improper underwriting and they're going to either a realize they can't hit their projections and meet their investor yield or B they're going to realize there's a lot more active work than passive investing involved in this business. And I, th- I think as a result, the next cycle, two, three years from now is going to expose some of those guys and bring more assets in the marketplace. I've, I've personally invested with one group that this has been their problem. Um, unfortunately um i was required to invest because i sold the park so i had to keep some money in the deals otherwise i otherwise i wouldn't have but they've been kind of bailed out by decreasing cap rates and better industry forces so it's like even though they screwed up three years in a row they, they kind of got lucky you know lucky timing but at this point you know you're not buying at a nine cap so you're not very easily on market so you, you can't if you're buying at a six and you under you know, you're under underwriting assumptions were incorrect the market changes probably aren't going to bail you out. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one, mate. Yeah. Well, what, so you, uh, based on your underwriting, um, I'm hearing what I think is prudent but conservative. And then if you add conservative plus conservative, it's doubly conservative. How does that, what's that do for your deal flow? My assumption is there's a lot of deals that you got to look at and pass on because you're, yeah. you're going to not be the high bidder. So are you finding deals off market or are you finding deals on market that others if for some other reason have avoided yeah we're finding deals um on market and off market both um so the on market deals we're actually um you know one we've got a presence in certain geographical area we've got a name at these brokers some of them know that we put in low ball offers um and just kind of wait until the right part comes uh with us and then they they let us know and then others were just they're just cool with us putting in low ball offers and see if something sticks and so yeah we're underwriting we're saying no to tons of deals um, and then the right deals come along. So, I mean, we're still got good deal flow. We're just very picky about it. And when we're doing our underwriting, first and foremost, it needs to check out for our investors. If we're not going to meet our investors' returns based off our ultra, ultra conservative underwriting, and it, there was things that I didn't even mention before, like if we if we think that we're actually going to take 18 months to execute on our construction business plan, we're going to underwrite that it's going to take three years because there could be things out of our control. Um, So we're, we're massively quicker on our timelines too than what we actually underwrite. But um, yeah, look, we just say no to a lot of deals and, um, uh, and, but then there's some deals that just maybe in our geographical area that wouldn't work for another operator because we got a bunch of parks in that area or because we live close to that, it can work for us. But if it didn't, if we weren't that close, to it then maybe it wouldn't um and then you know so being in some more tertiary markets is kind of working for us and um yeah that i think the fact that there is so many people not following through they're putting deals under contract and they're not getting to the finish line is there's a lot of deals coming to us where they're just like well, they can't take a chance anymore price is not the most important thing to them closing is no un- understood i actually have two properties that i've managed i sold them three years ago but I've managed them for the last three years, these guys. And I told them I didn't feel like doing third-party management anymore. So I told them, hey, start to either find a new manager or sell them. And we got a good relationship and they've invested some ideas. So I said, I'll give you some time. So it's been like six months. I and mean, they finally got them under contract, tried to sell them. Both contracts are supposed to close by the year. Both of them dropped at the last minute. So it's like okay. they were going to get a good price, but it was a potential is, good price. You know, it didn't happen. It, 
is it realistic? Yeah. And some of it's like tied to financing, you know, the, the buyers need to get certain financing terms and they think they're going to get it. And then they have a reality check and find out they're not. Um, yeah. But, you know, like one of the other things, one of the other reasons why we're winning deals too, and this is pretty important, is because I have a background in 20-year background, 25 years now in construction and construction management. So I'm willing to take on projects that a lot of other operators that don't have that like strong construction edge and they're more just like the business professionals um, wouldn't maybe wouldn't want to take on. Like I got no problems doing infrastructure work. I've got a park right now that we're doing tons of work to the sewer lines and sewer infrastructure. Um, I'm willing to take on projects that a lot of other operators aren't. Um, so that kind of helps as well. That's a good, that's a good point. I've, I've told people that too. So we do a little bit of that ourselves too. Is like, I'll take on a deal. Like we just bought a deal. It's 130 pads, but there's only 48 occupied. Well, that means you're not going to get an agency loan. You don't have high enough occupancy. It's in Illinois, which a lot of people don't want Illinois because it's a blue state regulatory environment. Um, it's got to be a local bank loan. So you've got to be quasi local. You know, if you're going to get a bank loan to get a local bank relationship and you got to have a decent net worth and credit because you got to sign a recourse note. So there's a lot of people that just don't want to sign recourse notes or only do agency or only do 85% occupied or only do, you know, the top tier cities or only do these states. So I think in a competitive environment, we need to set ourselves apart and what's your niche, you know, and where are you at or geographically or the type of deal you'll tackle. I mean, I know some people that they, they specifically look for deals with private utilities which most mm-hmm. of us don't want deals with private utilities, but they specifically look for them. So like, because most people don't, they're going to get them at a better price and they yeah. understand, understand private utilities and, and, and yeah. underwrite the risk and the budget and, and operational expenses. And it's like, that could be their niche. And, and they're probably gonna be ahead of the game if this works, because when the rest, when all the parks have been bought and sold, they're all of them been bought. The ones that are going to be left are the private utilities. And then the rest of us are like, okay, I, I guess I'll take another look at that again. But these other guys yeah. who've been doing it for five years will be like, well, we've, we've been taking more risk for five years, but now we're ahead of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Private utilities, um, large amounts of park owned homes, um, you know, major value add stuff with low occupancies and a lot of construction involved. Um, yeah. Those, those are the sort of deals on the outside. We've got, we've got no problems taking on any of that. I'm not super keen on private utilities. Um, we more lean towards the heavy construction, um, you know, 50% to 80% occupied, um, you know, things that are in tertiary markets. It doesn't bother me so much. As long as we feel like we've got the capacity to fill the lots through our test ads and as, as long as we feel like we can, and more importantly, that we can um, pull the contractors we need to get the jobs done in those markets because sometimes it's harder to get contractors than uh-huh. it is to get tenants, yes. uh, then then we're game on and we do it. And, you know, I, I am a very very conservative underwriter, but I'm a very extremely aggressive uh, manager and project manager. And we do all of our uh, management in-house. We've got our own property management company, Innovate Collective. And, uh, you know, we knock out remodels like really quickly. You know, some parks will do like, you know, 30 plus a year. Um, One of the parks we did last year, we knocked out nine remodels in six weeks. So, you know, we take massive action and we do things really quickly and we get the people we need to get in there. And I've had a lot of other operators that have said to me, Bryce, how do you do like 30 remodels at one park in a year? I'm like, dude, how, how do you not know how to do that? Especially when that's what you're projecting that you're going to do to your group, you know, and your investors and everything like that. And they're trying to just figure out how it's possible. It's like, you just got to get in there and take massive action. There's no real secret to it. Yeah. No, remodels, they're not for the faint of heart though. I was, I was at a park, I was at three of my parks yesterday in mid Missouri and we've got, we just got 10 
school building double wides for free from the school district, but there's just wow. four walls. It's just four walls. Okay. Yeah. So we just ship them in, put the concrete in, install them. And then we got four walls. We got to put in plumbing. We got to put an interior rooms. We got to put in cabinets. We got to build a kitchen. We got to put in a bathroom and they all, they're all different sizes. They're all doubles with their different lengths. And some of them are two, two, some of them are three, two, some are going to be four, two, depending on, but it's a big construction project to fill all, renovate all these. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've been lo- mostly trying to use, we've got a good project manager in house and trying to find local labor because it's cheaper than hiring professional contractors, but it's, it's got a downsides versus hiring professional contractors. The, the upside, the better part of course, is it's, it's less expensive, but the downside is it's you're managing crews and misfits more than hiring a pro. What is your approach on when you're doing a, re, a remodel, a single remodel versus you got to do 20 of them? Are you hiring one crew, five separate crews going? Or are you doing it? Are you hiring, you know, hourly laborers with an in-house supervisor or combination? Mm-hmm. Our ideal setup on a small park is to have a maintenance manager who also doubles as a manager because you can teach the management part, like on-site management part. You can't really teach the construction part. And then they can take care of the, the, you know, the remodels and they can do like one, two remodels a month, knock it out, cool pace. But if we've got a larger project, we actually have a construction crew that'll come in that'll actually be part of the project that almost um, – they, they do other jobs, but they're almost dedicated to us. And then they'll be just like knocking out tons of construction. And we'll, we'll even give them lawn mowing. We'll give them um, all sorts of different repairs and maintenance and remodels and tons of different work. And, uh, and then even help them build their teams sometimes and be like, all right, you guys need like five or six more people. You need a couple more electricians and some more carpenters, uh, another plumber, a roofer. And we can just like go out there and our team actually helps helps them build their team. We kind of like all work together in synergy to get the job done. They make tons of money. Um, they're making money. They're making bonuses. Um, our managers are making um, sales bonuses. For, so they're all hungry to do it on the timelines that we want to do it on. And uh, we just kind of like work in together and see how we can help each other. And, but it's, it's a challenge to find those crews. Those yeah. people aren't everywhere. We have to go through tons of contractors. It's very disheartening. It's very disappointing. It's a lot of contractors that don't do what they say they're going to do. They don't even show up. Um, so, you know, you've got to sift oh. through all the nonsense. Uh, and I think that's probably what takes a lot of people out. But if you're really, really persistent and you're looking for like the gems, uh, once we get them, we just hold on to them and, and we've actually brought them from park to park, uh, moving around, taking them to here to there just to keep them, keep them with us really. Yeah, no, that's great. We've had to do the same thing. Cause I, I've made that mistake early on where I needed a guy for 80 hours. So we had him for two weeks and he, oh, we, weren't, we weren't a new home yet. So go do something else. And he, and he the next day a pipe breaks, I need you day to day at midnight. He's like, Oh, I'm out of town. I'm doing a roofing job three weeks for three weeks, halfway across the country. It's like, crap like i learned keep your mate the good ones keep them busy year round so like i'm gonna find like if you're before you're done i got another home coming or if i don't have another home coming like you're going to my parents farm you're painting fences for two weeks until we get the home in like we're you you can count on us 40 hours and we, we started limiting them like you only get 40 so if we use 60 then you can run out of work faster and thus we have tons of work so we like four you can do other people's jobs nights and weekends but we need you 40 we need you triage nights and weekends and then it ended up working out well and just yeah. keep the guy on the payroll forever and he, yeah. and he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to go bid jobs or go, you know, we have indoor work and outdoor work where, so he used to have a job where if it rains, he's done get paid that day. So I've learned that keep them, keep the guys busy, keep them fed every day. And then they'll, they'll stick around and it's a win-win. 
Yeah, and it's an interesting industry, the construction industry, trades, blue collar workers. I is my personal prediction that I think in like, you know, I don't know how many years, let's just say like five years, maybe 10 years time, they're going to be more like um, doctors and attorneys where they're going to be the high income earners because there's not that many people. There's not many millennials breaking into the place. There's tons of baby boomers that are getting out of the space. We've got supply chain issues where materials are like more expensive. There's problems hiring people all over the place and specifically problems for people hiring good contractors to be in their companies. Um, a lot of contractors, they're starting to become more and more entitled as we get along and they're kind of cherry picking jobs. And um, it's a very, it's becoming a very different industry. It's becoming much more in favor of them because they're, they're in high demand and there's a light, low supply of them. And I don't see any indicators that let me believe that there's going to be an abundance of millennials that are going to come out and start joining the trades and start, you know, plumbing and roofing and welding and all that kind of stuff. I just, I just don't see that so it'll be really interesting to see where the space goes and 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 how expensive construction costs are going to be in the future i, I think you're i think you're spot on i think the contracts have realized that we need them more than they need us so they the pricing is adjusted i have an uncle who's a contractor and he he called it what is how do you phrase it i give him a bid price that says i don't want the work but if you pay me this i'll i'll take the work so he's like if he's booked out for three months somebody wants him to bid a bathroom remodel they'll go look at it and it should be like a four three or four thousand dollar job he'll say twelve thousand and most of the people will be like i'm not gonna pay twelve thousand bathroom remodel but every once in a while someone will say okay seems fair and he's like what i'm gonna get twelve thousand for bathroom so he's like okay i can fit you in 10 days from now and then bump the rest of the list. But he was like, he's like, and if you go do that 10 times, you might waste an hour 10 times. But if you get one out of 10, he goes, you're going to get overpaid eight or $9,000. Like you're the problem. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can't blame them. But we have to work with it, you know? And so we have to take these things into consideration if we're going to be wise and if we're in this for the long term. Yeah. That's great stuff. Great tips. Well, this is good, Bryce. Um, late, Graham, we got to talk about these different topics. Anything else you want to cover? Any tips or tricks or experiences that you want to share with our audience? I think, you know, for the first time, people that are looking to break into this space, um, don't like get caught up in wanting to know the ins and outs. As long as you understand the basic process of here's my criteria, here's how the purchase process works, and then here's how to close and and here's how to do your takeover. If you understand the main steps of that, you don't have to get granular about it. You have enough information to get started. And then if you can team up with somebody who's experienced, who's been doing it before, that can look over your shoulder, they can just like look at your underwriting and say, yeah, there's a couple of red flags there. Let's look into these. Um, You can get started. But I hear so many people who want to break into the space that want to like understand and everything first, you know, by the time you figure it out, the opportunity is going to be gone. So you got to just like take the first step. Don't worry about the second step. Once you do the first step, then you can think about the second step and the third step. And uh, if I didn't follow that process, then there's no way I'd be standing here or sitting here talking to you today. Um, Yeah. And for, for everybody else who's experienced, um, I think, you know, we've, we've still got a good couple of years left of good mobile home park investing. I think that we're going to see a lot more, increase in the demand for affordable housing and mobile home parks are the biggest contributor to that. We still can't solve the problem because there's not enough mobile home parks to be able to solve that problem. But um, we're in a really good position for the next few years 
And, uh, you know, the tax benefits that we can get in mobile home parks, we may not be able to get those um, in years to come. If they start changing the rules on um, depreciation, then we may end up having like different tax benefits and everything like that. So this year is still a really, really good year to get into uh, mobile home parks. Of course, I'm not giving any advice whatsoever. It's just uh, it's for educational purposes only. But, um, but yeah, good time, to, good time to enjoy the fruits of mobile home parks. Absolutely. It's great stuff. Bryce, where can people find you if you want to reach out to your website or email or anything? Yeah, you can go to our website, propertyworksusa.com. Works ends with a Z or a Z. Uh, you can also hit me up, Bryce, at propertyworksusa.com, uh, an email, and we'll get the conversation going. Right, Sounds great, Bryce. Appreciate it. Beautiful. Thanks a lot. Yep. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.